BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. Yo, the Bay is hosting an event on April 26th at Manny's in San Francisco's Mission District. We are going to have live readings and conversations all about the biggest stories going on in the Bay Area right now. You can get tickets by tapping the link in today's episode notes or by visiting kqed.org slash the Bay. And I hope to see you there. There was a point in the 90s when California law severely punished kids who were committing crimes. But then that crime started dropping. Around the same time, counties were building more detention centers. The San Francisco Chronicle's Jill Tucker visited one in Nevada County recently. It was just empty and quiet and dark, which is a little startling when you're thinking it's midweek, midday at a juvenile hall. There were five children in a facility built for 60 kids. A Chronicle investigation found that fewer kids are being detained in juvie all around the state, including right here in the Bay Area. But that's come with a cost, literally. Now some San Francisco supervisors want to close the city's detention center. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to the Bay. David Monroe is someone I met at Urban Players, a community group in the South of Market neighborhood in San Francisco, where he works with youth to prevent violence and to prevent these youths from following the path uh, that he took when he was a teenager. Jill Tucker's an education reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. She worked with Chronicle data journalist Joaquin Palomino for their investigation on the costs of juvenile detention across the state. You'll hear from both of them in this episode. David Monroe walked up to another, another teen in 1997 in Stockton and asked him if he had a problem with his gang. When the other teen said yes, um, David shot him five times. Three times in the front, twice in the back as the young man turned away to run. The other teen died. David, who was 15 at the time, was arrested and uh, pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and received a 15-year life sentence. David Monroe was paroled in 2016. He's 36 years old now, and as Jill said, he works for the nonprofit United Players, counseling at-risk teens in San Francisco. So David Monroe was arrested in this uh, time period in California and actually across the country when juvenile crime spiked. We're talking about the late 1980s, 1990s. What was going on during this time? So back then, we had a massive juvenile crime spike that really shocked the nation. They, they sort of, it was called the era of the so-called super predator. A super predator is a young juvenile criminal. He 
who is predatory and is preying on people. They're called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. And the president has asked the There was definitely a spike in crime. Many, many children were killed during that time. They were committing violent crimes. And it was a very real crime wave that uh, shocked the country and California. Walking into some Los Angeles neighborhoods these days is like walking into a police state. So far this week, at least four people have died in gang-related violence. Nearly a hundred times that many have died in the past year. And it really was a short window. I mean, it was maybe seven, eight years where juvenile crime was really bad in California, really bad across the country. While the federal government is doing a lot uh, to help states fight violent crime, ultimately the solution has to be the states uh, reforming their system, because I'm afraid we're getting back to revolving doors of justice at the state level. This is then-Attorney General William Barr talking to C-SPAN in 1992. First, we have to be tough with the violent criminal of today. And second, we, try, we have to try to prevent the youth of today from becoming the criminals of tomorrow. And around this time, in the mid-90s, California reacted to the spike in crime. Lawmakers changed the age which kids could be prosecuted as adults from 16 to 14. Policymakers, state lawmakers sort of used this fear uh, and tried to respond to it in a way by expanding the juvenile halls, expanding youth prisons. Here in California, that began around 97, where you had this huge building boom. Space for about 2,500 additional youth were added to California's juvenile halls. So why is that happening? There's a lot of incentives. So there's federal grant money that's available, and that money's only available on the condition that they increase capacity. So counties see this pot of money and say, oh, we could get this, but we need to expand. San Francisco, for example, they tore down their old facility, and they used the funds to build a brand new one, and I think they added space for 18 beds. As California was building more detention centers, the state didn't slow down being tough on crime. In 2000, voters passed Proposition 21, which led to stronger sentences for gang members and made it easier to prosecute kids committing crimes. More juvenile halls are being built, existing juvenile halls are growing, and this is occurring even as crime is starting to drop. I mean, beginning in 96, that's really when youth crime starts to go down. In 2003, youth advocates sued the state for neglect and abuse that was happening inside state-run detention centers. California responded with juvenile justice reforms that passed the responsibility to counties for locking up some kids. The state gave counties funding for this, and many of them started building bigger and more juvenile halls. No one believed that crime would go down, keep going down. There was a belief that crime would come back, that it would rebound. Why was there that belief? Well, crime is generally cyclical. It, it's related to the economy. It's related to a lot of other things. And I think there was just this idea that any drop in crime was just temporary. And, you know, to a certain degree, politicians are elected on tough on crime. I think there was a political benefit to the belief that crime would rebound, that bad kids would continue to be bad, and that the state and the country would have to grapple with that. So we see a, a spike in violent youth crime in the mid-90s, but then it starts to fall off pretty dramatically. How do experts explain this dramatic shift? Well, there's a lot of debate about why crime is down. Theories are uh, lead 
that crime spiked uh, because we had lead and gasoline and paint. And once we took that out, kids' brains were able to function properly. And oh, wow. therefore, because uh, lead is tied to brain development, development and yeah. decision making. There's other theories connected to technology, video games and other things bringing kids inside more or increasing security. And then there's the decline of the the crack cocaine market, increase in educational attainment. Mm -hmm. There's so many theories about why crime dropped and continued dropping, but nothing that is like this one thing that says, here's why crime for youth is so far down. Can you tell me what kind of drop we saw in juvenile detention numbers? So the juvenile detention numbers really started to just plummet in 2007. You have facilities now in San Francisco, for example, 150 beds. They have about 50 kids on average. Alameda County has 66 kids in a 358-bed facility. Uh, This was from last year, but I don't think the data, the numbers haven't changed that much. So when I toured Nevada County Juvenile Hall, which is a fairly new facility built in the building boom, when I walked up and rang the buzzer, they buzzed me into the inside and I I walked into a darkened reception area. I mean, it was just empty and quiet and dark, which is a little startling when you're thinking it's midweek, midday at a juvenile hall. Yeah. And ultimately, uh, when I took the tour, there were five children held that day, which is about average, in a facility built for 60 kids. There were more adults there than children. And and part of that is they needed the cook. They had to have one female guard because there was one girl being held. They had three other guards. The cost of, of maintaining that facility annually is $2.5 million. And you divide that by an average of five kids, and they're spending $500,000 on average for each of those kids. Joaquin, how much does it cost to uh, keep a young person, a kid, detained in one of these juvenile halls? In Santa Clara County, for example, the average cost of detaining someone in a juvenile hall in 2011, uh, I think it was about $170,000 a year. $170,000 a year? I think so. And that was in 2011. And then last year, it had reached more than $500,000. $500,000? How does that even happen? Uh, I mean, it is a product of having fewer kids and the same amount of money directed towards these facilities. So this is... Something that I think a lot of local probation departments are grappling with now. You have all this extra space. You have these big buildings that were built for a crime wave that collapsed. And what do you do with it? What are counties doing to deal with this problem of having fewer kids in juvenile detention, but the costs are going up? Many of them said that because there are fewer kids that they have the ability to actually give them more attention, to give them more services. In San Francisco, for example, half of the pods are essentially shut down and they've converted them into other things. So one of the pods is now a rec room and they have where the the counseling room that's off the side of that is now sort of like a spa room where they have nail polish and other things. (laughs) But the reality is these kids are still spending the night in cement cells Um, They're still walking down the halls in jumpsuits with their hands behind their back. It's very much a jail cell. After you showed your reporting to San Francisco supervisors, what did they say? They were shocked. 
I thought to myself, this this is absurd. When we shared that information with Hillary Ronan, Supervisor Hillary Ronan in San Francisco. The worst misuse of money that I've seen yet. They said this was the impetus that they had been looking for to challenge the status quo, to challenge the juvenile justice system. With $300,000 per child, we could get the best private school education for that child, a a market rate apartment in a nice neighborhood in San Francisco uh, for that child and their caregivers, full-time caseworker and uh, therapist. A group of San Francisco supervisors wants to shut down San Francisco Juvenile Hall. They say it is ineffective, costly, and inhumane, so they're drafting legislation to have the facility shut down in the next few years. Three San Francisco supervisors, Hillary Ronan, Shimon Walton, and Matt Haney, said they want to find a way to close the city's detention center by late 2021. There does seem to be a change in in the culture around how we view rehabilitation and also rehabilitation for young people. And as you were talking about, like brain development, for example. So what role do you think um, this change in culture, what role do you think that played in the fall in juvenile arrests and detention? It's a bit of a chicken or the egg, right, that crime started going down. So perhaps they didn't see these young kids as horrifying monsters anymore. And and you started seeing back in the, at the, the height of the crime wave, these organizations like United Players starting up to work with these young people. There was a saying that I had heard while I was in prison was, the only people in life to get even with are those who have helped you. And so when I heard this, I was like, dang, I really have been trying to get even with everybody who's hurt me. So David, you know, basically said he was one of those kids that they were talking about, you know, sort of the monster kids, the kids who grew up in dysfunctional families, in in the middle of, of violent communities with the expectation that they would be criminals. I was that kid. I had stuff going on, but I didn't know how to deal with it. He was the kid they were talking about. But... He he also looks now and, and realized that he was a product of his community, a product of his family. And there's a lot more understanding now about the impact of all of that, about the impact of seeing so much violence and, and trauma. So he found his rehabilitation at San Quentin. But he looks at the kids that he's around. They're, they're still experiencing trauma. They still have dysfunctional families. And I think he sees a way to cut them off before they take the wrong road like he did. We don't have great answers for why crime's been dropping, but clearly less crime is a good thing. Still, it makes some people uneasy, and the fear and unpredictability of crime is likely going to make decisions about what to do with these juvenile halls hard. Jill Tucker's an education reporter, and Joaquin Palomino is a data journalist and investigative reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks to KQED's Peter John Schuler and Chronicle videographer Mondula Verghese, who gave us some of the sounds and interviews you heard in this episode. The Bay was produced this week by Amanda Font, Trina Schwartz, and editor Erica Aguilar. KQED's leadership team includes Vinny Tong, Julie Kane, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it for The Bay. Talk to you next week. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. 
I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.